and turn to Mark 16, our last message in the Gospel of Mark. Mark 16, 1 through 8, and you'll, some of you may be wondering why we're not going from 9 to 20. Uh, more about that in a moment. <laughs> uh, our last message is the Gospel of Mark, Mark 16, 1 through 8, the last of Mark's actual writings here to us after this long, long study that we've been in. I've entitled this message, What Will You Do With the Empty Tomb? What will you do with the empty tomb? Mark 16, 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, because they were afraid. You may be one of those people that likes movies with a nice bow tied at the end, you know, where the guy and the girl fall in love and they live happily ever after. Um, if that's you, I understand that. We're a people that longs for hope. We long for good resolutions to problems. But Mark ends his gospel like this, with followers of his who are afraid and don't tell anyone what they've just been told to tell. It's an interesting way to end the gospel of Mark. As I said before, just, just so you know, the rest of what you have in your Bible in uh, Mark, Mark 16, 9 through 20, wasn't in the early manuscripts. This was added by the church later to, because there were people in the church that were like you and me when we watch a movie. Whoa, 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 whoa. Can't end this way. We've got to kind of make some sense about that. Let, let's, let's use what the other gospel writers have, have written to us, and let's kind of tack that on at the end. You know, Great Commission and all that stuff. Well, Mark 16, 9 through 20 has been viewed the last 2,000 years by the church as helpful to the church, helpful to the church, just like John 8 is. But Mark 16, 9 through 20 isn't, wasn't in Mark's original writing, so it's not original Scripture. Again, we'll see more about that next week. Dr. Peter Gurry from Phoenix Seminary will come, and he's an expert in this subject, and he's a compelling teacher as well, so he'll help make sense of the latter end for you. But it is something that's been helpful to the church, just not Scripture. And so we'll end with where Mark ended in verse 8. And if you end where Mark ended in verse 8, you kind of scratch your head thinking, this is how it ends? With the talk of fear, they're alarmed. The angel says, don't be alarmed. They're trembling and they're astonished as they go out and they say nothing to anyone because why? They're afraid. Those aren't the endings that we normally like. 
But Mark writes that ending for a purpose. We'll get to that at the end of the message. But here, what I want you to see is there are two announcements, two announcements that should be made. The first is an announcement from God. It's a gracious announcement from God. God tells these women through His messenger, through the angel, that Jesus is not here. Jesus of Nazareth is not in the tomb. He's not dead anymore. He's risen. He's not here. And He wants me to tell you, go to Galilee and meet with Him. So there's an announcement from God that Jesus is alive. That's the first announcement. The second announcement is actually an intended announcement. The angel tells the women to go and tell the disciples and Peter that he's alive and he's going to meet you in Galilee. So there's a gracious announcement from God and there's an intended announcement. The ladies are meant to open their mouths about the resurrection. And Mark shows us that they didn't immediately. They didn't do that right away. They were afraid. And so I want to view this passage through those two announcements, two glorious resurrection announcements. The first is the gracious announcement from God to people. The second is the intended announcement. We don't hear it here in this passage, but it's the intended announcement from people to people. So God telling people, my son's alive, and that's meant to cause those same people to tell other people that Jesus, the son of God, is alive. That's how Mark frames this section. Now, we've been talking for almost two years a lot about Jesus from the Gospel of Mark. We've seen His suffering. We've seen His prediction of death. We've seen also His power over suffering and death. We know that He's raised people from the dead. He's healed sickness. He's, he's opened blind eyes, which according to the Old Testament, only the Messiah would do. He's done all that. And then we see, we've seen it for the last few months, his being mocked, his death, the, the, the pitiful state that he's been in, his humiliation. We've seen his followers leave him largely. Joseph of Arimathea and the ladies are still around, but most of his followers are gone. We've been brought to very low points. And this, chapter 16, is the victory that he talked about. Death didn't have the final say. The chief priests didn't have the final say. The scribes didn't have the final say. The elders didn't have the final say. Rome didn't have the final say. God the Father had the final say when He raised His Son from the dead, and that's where we stand today. Jesus is alive. No government is more powerful than He is. No sin is more powerful than He is. He's alive, and that's what this passage demonstrates to us. This is the victory that we wanted at the end, but the response from His followers isn't always victorious. So, get that. Jesus is victorious at the end of the Gospel of Mark, but His followers don't always walk in that victory. That's also where we are today. Jesus is King. He is Lord. He is Master. He is Sovereign, but we still doubt. We still fear. We're still anxious, and Mark 16, 1 through 8 shows us that. So, let's look at these two glorious resurrection announcements. The first is in verses 1 through 6, the gracious announcement from God to people. Again, you see this in these verses that God is telling people, telling these ladies through the angel, through the messenger, that Jesus is alive. Again, fast forward, look at verse 6. Don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. The angel is there because God sent him. So this is the gracious announcement from God to people. Let's start in verse 1, though, and kind of work our way through this. 
chapter 16, verse 1, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. So the Sabbath is passed. What day is that in our day of the week? That's Saturday. They saw him die Friday as it was getting to be evening before the sun went down and the Sabbath started. So they saw him die. They saw him taken off the cross by Joseph of Arimathea. They saw him brought to Joseph's tomb. They saw where he was laid. They saw where Jesus died and where he was entombed. They saw all of this. Now, normally, you would bring spices at that time, when you put the body in the grave, you would, you would put the spices in the wrappings so that the body would smell okay. Now, now, just know something about first century burials, and I mean beyond as well, but in the first century here, the, the spices weren't to preserve the body. The body decayed. The, the spices were there to prevent the smell. It was a way of still honoring a dead body. But the spices were there to prevent the smell, the stench, not to prevent decay. But normally this would be done right when the body is buried. Why didn't that happen? Why didn't it happen Friday night? Because it was getting to be sundown. And the Jews had to get the body entombed. They had to do all this work before the Sabbath came because they couldn't do work on the Sabbath. So his body's in there on Friday evening. They come Sunday morning to bring some of the spices. Now we know from other gospel writers they bought spices on Friday but they also may have bought spices after the Sabbath, after the sun went down Saturday evening. It says here that when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so they might go and anoint him. Verse 2, and very early on the first day of the week, now we're at Sunday morning, very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. So these three ladies who saw where he was, his body was, was put in Joseph's tomb, these three ladies went Sunday morning to go and put these spices in the wrappings, anoint his body. So they would have rested on Saturday. They went early on Sunday morning. This, again, was a fulfillment of prophecy. <clears throat> Jesus was in the tomb for three days. Again, in Jewish time, any part of a day is one. So part of Friday, Saturday, part of Sunday, three days. Verse 3, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? So they wake up early. They're going to the tomb, and on the way there, they're saying, and the, the language of verse 3, the original language is, they continued to say, they kept saying, what about the stone? What about the stone? Who's going to roll it away? What are we going to do about the stone? They hadn't made arrangements before they left the house. They were just going, and hopefully, they'll see someone or some group of people that can move this heavy stone away. What about the stone? Who will roll it away? Verse 4, and looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Now, if you're with the women at that time, you see that stone rolled back and you don't think, Jesus is alive, he came out of the grave. You think someone took his body. Grave robbery was a big deal back then. You would have thought somebody took his body. Something happened. So the fact that the stone was rolled away, and that's the first thing they thought, would not have encouraged them. But the stones rolled away. It was very large, Mark says. He wants us to know this. Verse 5, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side. Why was it the right side? Because it wasn't the left side. That's just where it was. No. <laughs> Nothing deep there, okay? Well, we trace it back to Abraham. No, no, just because that's where it was, on the right side. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. <clears throat> now, when you 
have angelic appearances in the Scriptures. Oftentimes, they're clothed in white. That's meant to show you something. This is a messenger from God. The word angel literally means messenger. It's a messenger from God to do something for God on earth. So God sends a messenger clothed in white. First century readers would know that. This is, this is an angelic being. This is a messenger from God sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Well, of course they were. If you read the Scriptures and you see people come into contact with angels, they're alarmed. These powerful beings from heaven sent from God look like people. There's alarm there. So the ladies are alarmed. That's nothing new to Scripture. That's nothing shocking. But imagine all the emotions going on. They're up early. Their Lord has died. They've been mourning His loss for at least part of three days. They're going to the tomb. The stones rolled away. Oh, no, someone took His body. Something's happened. They go in. There's someone sitting there. What's this all about? He's an angelic being. There's some awe there, and they're afraid. You and I would be afraid. We'd be puzzled. We, they don't know what's going on. Now, remember, Jesus had been saying that He would rise again, but His followers don't get that yet. They don't get the how. Remember in John 11 when Jesus goes to raise Lazarus from the dead and the sisters know that Lazarus is going to rise again in, in the future, in the coming kingdom. They know that in the resurrection, like way, way down the road, he's going to rise again. And Jesus shows them, no, no, like in a couple minutes, like, like soon he's going to rise again. Well, similar here, they expected a resurrection in the end. Their Old Testament Scriptures had taught them that. They knew, Psalm 16, that the Lord would not allow His Holy One to see corruption. They knew, they knew about a final resurrection for God's people, but they didn't expect an immediate resurrection. Well, when Jesus said, I'm going to be delivered over to Gentiles, I'm going to die, and three days later I'm going to rise again, He wasn't saying three days, like three millennia. He meant in three days I'm going to rise again. But they didn't get that. Verse 6, the angel, He said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. I mean, th those two phrases separated by one period, who was crucified, period, he has risen. It doesn't get more polar opposite than that. Jesus Christ crucified, but now he has risen. He's not here. See, I mean, he maybe did this with his hands. See the place where they laid him. He's not here. Now, why did God need to send an angel there? Why the angel? Because again, if they, if they would have seen the stone rolled away in just an empty tomb, they would have thought grave robbers. This would have been, this would have been controversial. Something happened. You, you think then the followers of Jesus would say, hey, he's alive, and Rome would go, okay whatever. But we're being told here that heaven is making sense of this. Heaven is showing you it's not that someone stole his body. God the Father is saying, my son's alive. He's alive. So God is making sense of this for them and for us as well. God is commenting on why Jesus isn't in there. It's not because someone took him. It's because God raised him from the dead and he's alive, just like Jesus said would happen over and over and over again in his public ministry. He said it would happen. So this is a glorious announcement from God to people. I don't want you to miss that. This is God sending a messenger to tell the followers of Jesus that Jesus is alive. God wants this to be known. 
You see what happens after this in the rest of the Scriptures. The apostles are always talking about the resurrection. In fact, if you look at the book of Acts, look at all the sermons that the apostles and the believers preach. They're always, they always lead up to the resurrection of the dead. Jesus is alive. So God intends for this message about the resurrection of His Son to, to be known, to be proclaimed. And God's gracious to give it to us. God desires people to know not only that His Son died, but that His Son's alive again. In Acts 26, Paul is, uh, you remember Paul, gloriously converted, was one of the Pharisees, one of the persecuting Jews on the early church, and then he becomes converted and becomes a follower of Christ himself, becomes part of the church himself, becomes a Christ follower himself. Well, in Acts 26, he's on trial by Rome. He's giving this testimony before King Agrippa, and he recounts his own conversion. And I want to help you and just kind of drive this home that, that God intends for people to know his son is alive, and God's using Paul to make that known. So Paul's talking to King Agrippa, and he talks about how Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, not, not God the Father in Acts 9, Jesus Christ is talking to Paul. And Jesus Christ says, Paul, why are you, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? And he reveals himself to be Jesus Christ who's talking to Paul, the, the one who's alive. And he says this, I'm sending you, me, Jesus, sending you, Paul, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, and they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Jesus tells Paul that I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they can have forgiveness of sins and they can have life. He goes on. Paul says this, to this day, I've had help. I've had the help that comes from God. So, so remember, Jesus saying, I'm sending you to the Gentiles so that they can have life. And Paul's saying now, because of that, to this day, God has helped me in the proclamation of that message. And so I stand here testifying both to the small, the nobodies, and to the great. Maybe he's pointing to King Agrippa. To the small and the great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. What did the prophets and Moses say would come to pass? Here it is, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So Paul's saying, listen, God is strengthening me. Why is God strengthening Paul? Because God wants Paul to go and tell Jew and Gentile. He wants everyone to know Jesus Christ came. He suffered, he died, and he rose again. God wants this message known. This is, after all, and I'm not overstating this, the solution to everything. The solution to every one of your and my problems is that Jesus conquered sin and the grave and death. He's alive. Is this life hard right now? Absolutely. Friends dying, relationships ending, governments not governing or over-governing, whatever your decision there. Everything's broken, but Jesus is alive, and he's working through all of this, and he's victorious, and he'll bring his people home. This is the solution to everything, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think of, I know this about myself, I've learned this about myself, that, that when, when I have something special to share, maybe, maybe I've kind of planned a surprise for someone maybe my family, something like that. I've got something special to share. I'm not good at keeping the secret. 
I, I planned a trip a, a couple years ago um, and for, for my wife and had this trip plan. I thought, I'm not going to tell her until the day before the trip. And, and I kind of booked it all around Christmas time. It was for our anniversary. Uh, we're going to celebrate it. It's in, it's in April. We're going to celebrate it in March. But I booked this trip. I thought, okay, I'm going to plan it now, right before Christmas, and then announce it there in March. Well, I announced it that night that I planned it. <laughs> I, I, I have to tell you. And, and I kind of did it like the whole, do you want to know? <laughs> like really meaning that I want to tell you. <laughs> In a sense, I think I see the heart of God the Father here. My son's alive. My son's alive. He launches his people out to go and tell everyone that his son is alive. He had his son before he died tell people that I'm going to die and rise again. This is something God the Father wants the world to know, that Jesus Christ is alive. And isn't it gracious of him to give us Mark 16, where he sends a messenger and says, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was crucified. He's not here. He's alive. We need that message preached to us every single day. Jesus is living. He, didn't, he wasn't defeated by the governments of his day, by the sinners of his day. He's alive. This is a gracious announcement from God to people. Secondly, let's look at the intended announcement from person to person. So God tells his people, makes it known that he's alive and he gives them this command, you go and make it known to each other, to other people who are in darkness, who are in sadness. Go make this known. I say it's the intended announcement because Mark leaves us in verse 8 showing us that it wasn't an announcement that was publicly proclaimed yet. It took the ladies some time. They ultimately got there. They ultimately shared this message. But here at the beginning, Mark's showing us they didn't tell anyone. So it's an intended announcement to be from person to person. Now, <clears throat> these ladies, they're not planning on this on Sunday morning. What are they planning on? They've got these spices. They're going to anoint the body of their Lord, and that's what they're going to do, and they're going to go home, probably mourning still because their Lord has died. So, I mean, think of the week it's been for them. They would have been preparing the Passover meal. Their Lord is in Jerusalem. Their Lord is having conflict with the religious leaders. They would have known about all this. This was a heavy week. There's a lot going on that week. The crowds turned against Jesus, called for his death. Rome listened. His disciples left him. And then the ladies have this Passover meal that they're supposed to prepare. This Sabbath meal, later on, they're supposed to prepare. There's a lot of cooking going on. There's a lot of leaving Jesus going on. There's a lot of emotion going on. And it ends Friday night with him dying on the cross. They have this Passover meal and Sunday. They're not going, skipping to the tomb on Sunday. These ladies would have been weighed down with sorrow and heaviness. They get into the tomb and it's not, all right, he's not here. He must be alive. Like he said, they're not there yet. As a matter of fact, they're alarmed and the angel has to tell them, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. But now, they've got this information that he's alive. I mean, again, if this was you and I, and we're walking out of the tomb with that information, do you think this is real? Seriously, is this what he meant? I mean, did someone really take his body? Who was that guy? Is that guy really from heaven? A lot of questioning going on here. 
But now, the angel gives them something to do. He tells them the announcement, gives them something to do, and they're not ready to do it yet. Verse 7, and go. In the original language, the go is emphatic. He's, he's getting them out of the tomb. He doesn't say, hey, sit here for a few hours and let me connect all the dots for you. No, no. Look, he's not here. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He was crucified. Now he's alive. Go. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you'll see him, just as he told you. He is rushing them out of the tomb. He's calling them to do something they're not ready to do yet. But I want you to see here the the immediacy of the commission. Go. Make it known. No time to think. No time to sit here and walk through it all. Just go. Get this message out. And that's, that's the heartbeat behind even Christ's great commission when you see it in the Gospels. It's this, go, get out of here. Make this known. Even in Acts 1, you know this about the ascension of Jesus. Acts 1, they're looking at him go up. And it's like they need the angels to say, all right, guys, he's coming back the same way. Scram. You, Samaria, you, Judea, you, the uttermost parts. That's the idea. Heaven's like, okay, accomplished. Work's been done. He's alive. And in Acts, he ascends to heaven. Get this message out. Go. He's calling them to, to haste, to obedience. Make it known that he's alive. But go tell his disciples and Peter. Now, we've looked at this, haven't we? When's the last time we learned about Peter? Back in Mark 14. What did we learn about Peter? He blew it. He did not take a stand for Christ. He was ashamed to be considered one of Christ's followers. He saved his own skin while Christ was being sentenced to death. That's where we left Peter. Go tell his disciples and Peter. I love that. The messenger was told by God that it's important that Peter knows this as well. Single out Peter. He could have said, go tell his disciples, and they would have told Peter. He was one of the disciples. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. He's going back to Galilee. Maybe this would have been Peter's home. That was, after all, Jesus' home base in Galilee. He's going back to the meeting place he told you about in Galilee. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you'll see him just as he told you. And Galilee is where they would get their instructions to go and get this message out. I want to highlight this, though. You would think if you were reading Mark for the very first time, if you had never heard it before and you were just following it closely through, you'd hear about Peter deserting him in Mark 14, and you'd think that's the end of his relationship with Peter. That's it. But in Mark 16, 7, Peter's name pops up one last time, and I want you to see what's happening. God the Father tells one of the messengers that he's sent to tell the women, to tell the disciples and Peter that he's going to meet you again. Peter is not being cast out no longer as a disciple, no longer as a friend of Jesus. Heaven is sending a message to Peter, Jesus wants to meet with you. And we know that Peter and Jesus would be restored to fellowship in the Gospel of John. We know that Jesus would restore Peter back into fellowship and back into this work that he has. Jesus is more gracious than we think he is. 
God is more gracious than we think he is. God is more gracious than we deserve. Jesus is more gracious than we deserve. Even as followers of Jesus, we continue to disobey Jesus. And he still has this reconciling relationship with us. Thank God that Mark 16, 7 is in here and Peter's name is here. This helps me. I hope this helps you. See, as a follower of Christ, your sin is not the final word on your relationship with God. His grace is. His grace is the final word on your relationship with Him. Even when we're saved, we sin against Him. We sh- it, w- it would seem like we're saved and then, oh, we blow it. He's certainly going to discard us. But no, His grace covers our sin. Grace is greater than our sin. And we see that here with Peter. So the, this messenger tells the ladies, go tell the disciples, tell Peter, he's going before you to Galilee. You'll see him there just as he told you. Where, when did he tell him that? Mark 14, verse 8. After I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. I mean, you and I don't talk like that. Your grandfather didn't talk like that to you before he died. Listen, I'm going to die. Three days later, I'm going to rise again. Then I'll meet you in Phoenix. Uh, I mean, we wish he would. Death is horrible. But Jesus did that. After I die, three days later, I'm going to rise again, and I'll meet you in Galilee. What, what, what a crazy thing to say if it's not true. Well, here, heaven is saying Jesus is keeping that plan. This whole death thing didn't interrupt that plan. Did not interrupt that plan one bit. He died. He rose again. He's going to do what he said. He's going to meet you. We can trust the promises of God. Verse 8, and they went out and fled from the tomb. And you would think it said, overjoyed that he was alive, running quickly to tell the disciples, having confidence. They, they ran by a Roman centurion and, and made a face at him because nothing can stop them now. That's not how Mark ends. The truth is Jesus is alive, but the lady's hearts aren't aligned there yet, and their head isn't confident in that truth yet. They went out and fled from the tomb, for they were trembling. They're literally shaking, and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone. Notice they were supposed to tell things to people. They're supposed to tell the disciples, and they ultimately would, but Mark's highlighting their immediate response wasn't obedience. Why? The very last words of the Gospel of Mark. Because they were afraid. They were afraid. I love the Bible for this reason. Sometimes you're reading through the Bible and you go, is this in the Bible? I mean, read the book of Judges. What's all this tragedy about? It's real life. It's real life in a cursed world. And God's showing us that. The Gospel of Mark, Mark 16, verse 8, is one of those verses where we say, that shouldn't be the response. Why is that the response? Because this is real life. This is real life. Jesus is alive. We're anxious. Jesus is sovereign and ruling over everything, including your family, but we're fearful. This is real life. Mark Strauss, who I've 
been helped by for these last couple years. We'll hear from him one last time. Listen to what he says about this. Many of Mark's readers are likely also to be confused and uncertain. Remember, Mark's writing to an audience a few decades after this actual happening, a few decades after Jesus rose from the dead, he's writing to an audience that they know Jesus is alive, and they're being persecuted, and their temptation is to be fearful and to cave to the authorities and to keep quiet, to not tell anyone so that they save their lives. They're in the same predicament the women are in. So Strauss says, many of Mark's readers are also likely confused and uncertain Yes, they believe that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God who paid the penalty for their sins, but why is the church not experiencing more victory in the world? Why are the persecutions and ostracism growing more severe? Why are some abandoning the faith? So Mark's readers, decades after Jesus was raised from the dead, they would be anxious and fearful too, knowing that He's alive. James Edwards, another writer on the Gospel of Mark, The resurrection does not magically dispel fear and cowardice, transforming fallible human characters into faithful disciples. Faithful discipleship consists of following Jesus, not contemplating doing so. Edwards just keeps it real, tells it like it is. You would think the resurrection could dispel fear and launch people into this confidence, and it will. Just give it some time. The, gospel of, or the, the, the book of Acts is true, but there's still a temptation toward fear. There's still a temptation toward anxiety and cowardice. And these ladies are afraid. They just heard the message, he's alive, and their heart isn't there yet. So why this ending? The readers already know that Jesus is alive. Now imagine a first century Bible study in Rome, Okay? knock at the door. Hey, everyone, I've got, a, I've got an account written by Peter's disciple, Mark. He wants, he wants you to have it. He wrote it to us, to these churches here in Rome. And you might, this might be a secret church meeting because Rome is looking for the Christians. So then the secret church meeting, you're at this Bible study in Rome, you're a Christian You get this letter from Mark and you read it all the way through and you read through 16 verse 8 and it ends with these ladies said nothing because they were afraid. And you go around the Bible study circle and you say, what application do you draw from Mark 16 verses 1 through 8? And if it's like any other Bible study, you've got the overconfident Peter types in the Bible study and you've got the realists. (laughs) The overconfident Peter says, pshh, If I knew Jesus was alive like that, if an angel told me that, I'd go out and nothing would stop me. Then why are you hiding in this house right now? (laughs) The The thing these ladies experienced were being experienced by the believers that Mark wrote this gospel to. So there's no room for, I'd tell everyone, I'd be so confident. And if someone did say that in that Bible study, people would point back to the letter where Peter was pretty confident too. So why this ending? Because this is real life. Jesus is alive and we're still scared. Jesus is alive and we're still anxious. So, 
How will you respond to the resurrection of Jesus preached to you for the last two years? How will you respond to the fact that this ends with Jesus is alive? Is this enough to dispel fear? Is this enough to preach to your heart that Jesus still cares for his own, still keeps his promises? Is this enough to keep you from fearing that something is stronger than Christ, sickness, suffering, unbelief, the government, whatever it may be? Is this enough to reorient your thinking? Let me speak to four groups as we end. To sinning Christians, Christians who are frustrated by their sin, and that's really every Christian. So, to sinning Christians, know this from the end of the Gospel of Mark. Sin does not have the final word in your relationship with Christ. His grace does. Imagine being Peter right now at this moment. These ladies find out Jesus is alive. Peter's still holed up in a house somewhere in the Jerusalem area, maybe even in Jerusalem. They're hiding the apostles, the disciples, the great preachers of the kingdom of God in the years to come are hiding. They're afraid. And Peter wouldn't have just been afraid. He would have been broken, guilty, remorseful. Imagine if you betrayed your best friend and your best friend died and you weren't expecting him to, to live again three days later. Imagine living with that. Your best friend that you've been one with for years, that you've said, I'm committed to you like no other. I- I'm loyal to you. I'm going to be faithful to you. I love you. I'm with you. And then you betray your best friend. At the very end, they die. You didn't have a chance to make it right. You betrayed them. You were disloyal. You thought of yourself over them. Imagine the guilt of that. And the Gospel of Mark ends with, go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going to meet him in Galilee. He's going to meet them in Galilee. That's grace. That same reality is true of us as Christians. You feel horrible every time you sin. You feel bad about it. How can I keep doing this? What's going on? But that sin doesn't define your relationship with Christ. His grace does. So I don't want anyone who's suffering because of their own sin to miss the grace of Jesus Christ this morning. Next, to suffering Christians. Maybe you're suffering because of your own sin. Maybe it's just because the world's a place where Christians suffer. To suffering Christians. Know that suffering does not have the final word. Have you been suffering for a long time? Yes. But does that mean suffering is the final word? No. Jesus here lives again. Jesus has been suffering. One of the themes of the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the victorious one, is victorious by suffering. We've been seeing that. And we've been seeing that Jesus is teaching his disciples, not only will I suffer, you're following in that wake also. So because Jesus comes through suffering is now alive, the message to his disciples is, even suffering disciples, even you and I, suffering followers of Christ, is that's not the end. Suffering will lead to vindication, will lead to glory. He has the final say. So know that. That's why Peter himself, again, the man behind Mark's gospel, the discipler of Mark. 
Peter said this when he wrote to the church years later, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. So Peter's saying, God has caused us, those of us who are believers, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. We, we were born in a world and we felt like we had no hope, but he made us alive. He, he made us to be born again to a living hope. How? What gives us hope? What's new about our lives now? Caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When you were told, when you were taught, Peter, saying that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that changed your whole outlook on life. The resurrection is meant to give believers hope. So suffering Christians, know that your suffering does not have the final word. The resurrection does. Third, to those who are not yet Christians, know that this gospel teaches, this message teaches, that Jesus Christ rose, died and rose again to give eternal life. There is no religion in the world that promises eternal life to those who are caught up in their sin. There's no religion that promises eternal life without them doing anything to earn it. In that way, every other religion is the same. There's some sort of human merit in that. The Christian religion, the Christian faith, teaches that there's nothing that you bring to the transaction to please God. His own Son did everything for you. The call is to simply trust Him and repent of your sin. Acknowledge your sin, acknowledge your guilty, and trust Jesus Christ. That brings eternal life. That's what the Gospel of Mark teaches. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is now here. It's time to get right with Jesus Christ. Know that Jesus went through all of this suffering. He suffered the wrath of God in your place. That's the intent of this whole thing. He suffered for you so that you would not have to. The Bible over and over again talks about the love of God the Father, the love of God the Son. And I hope that you understand that Jesus came because He loves to save sinners. And you are one, just like everybody else on the planet. Jesus came to save sinners. He died and He rose again to give you eternal life, the eternal life that's found in Him. What better day than the end of gospel, the gospel of Mark to be the first day of the rest of your life, the first day of your eternal life, to trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. I'll speak to the fourth group. The fourth group is to all Christians. So I've singled out some sinning Christians, suffering Christians, but let's remember all of us, all of us who are in Christ, this resurrection account in Mark isn't the end of the kingdom of God. In many ways, it's just the beginning. The end of the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus on earth, here according to Mark, that this is, this is it. Here we go. He's going to go meet you in Galilee. We know what comes later. He tells his disciples, go, get this message everywhere. He appears to over 500 people. There's still some things to be done before he, he ascends to heaven. But here in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has lived, he's suffered, he's died, he's risen again, and he tells his followers, make this known, that he's alive. So to all Christians, the ending of Mark is not just an end. It's the beginning of discipleship. Okay? 
I've learned this about Jesus. Now what do I do with the empty tomb? What do I do with the resurrection of Jesus? You go and you make it known. You go and you make it known. Whether it's September 11, whether it's COVID, whether it's someone dying of cancer, you know, you know the solution to death. His name is Jesus Christ, and we have that. Friends, we have something the world doesn't have. They're afraid. They're concerned. They look for the alleviation to death in a vaccine, in a president, in peaceful foreign relations, in in this trial drug that maybe will help grandma. They look for it everywhere. We have it. It's Jesus Christ. He's alive. So I want to encourage you, as you share the gospel with people, make sure your gospel is shared in a way that only Jesus Himself can be the Savior. Don't say, if you come to Jesus, He's going to make your life better. Because guess what? Other religions promise that. And for a time, there might be some peace brought in certain situations. But that doesn't solve their biggest problem, death. Only Jesus solves that problem. So don't evangelize by offering promises that a lot of other people can offer. If you come to Jesus, He'll, he'll, I mean, he'll, he'll give you joy. Yeah, so does that new diet that I'm on. But what about if you come to Jesus, he'll give you life after death because he conquered the grave himself. No diet can do that. No other religion can do that. So let's preach the resurrection. We somehow leave the resurrection off of our gospel presentations so often. It's so weird because if we just preach the gospel message, God is the holy and just creator and all men have sinned against him. But God, because of his abundant mercy and love, sent his own son. His own son didn't grab some other guy he doesn't care about. His own son, he offered him up for us to die and suffer for us and to give us his son's righteousness. And you simply have to believe in the son. Believe that you're that sinner and you need him, the son. What do you say? And if you have any thinking unbeliever, listen to that. They go, well, what a sad story. He died. Where's that going to get me? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And he rose again. He's alive. You want to trust him because he's now alive after dying. So don't forget the resurrection when you tell people the good news. You want eternal life? Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And 1 Corinthians 15 says that he's the first fruits, meaning there's fruit coming after that. That's us. We follow in that way. So, all Christians, Christians, tell people that Jesus rose from the dead. Tell people that He's alive. One writer said this, the message of the resurrection isn't come back and just hang out in the empty tomb. The message of the resurrection is onward. Go. Make it known. Same writer said, we must not merely celebrate the resurrection we must respond to it. Don't memorialize Jesus. Trust and follow Him. Don't commemorate Jesus. Dedicate your life to Him as your living Lord. Friends, we're done with the Gospel of Mark, but that just means there's work to be done. <laughs> Tell people that you know that are scared to die about Jesus Christ. Walk them through the Gospel of Mark. Show them that in the end, He's alive. And he wants them to know that. Show them by 
showing them that God sent a messenger to make it known that he's alive. And he tells his followers, these ladies, to go and make it known that he's alive, that God wants them, your neighbor, your cousin, your friends, to know that Jesus is alive and they can have life in him. God is gracious. He wants people to know there's a way to be alive forever in his presence, reconciled with him. Our God is good. There's a famous opera writer. Is it an opera writer, author? Whatever it is. He wrote operas, okay? Famous one named Puccini. He was stricken with cancer in 1922. Italians knew him. Many still do. So again, famous writer of opera, stricken with cancer in 1922. He decided to write one more opera. And one of his students said, but what if you die before you finish it? Puccini said this, oh, my disciples will finish it. Puccini died in 1924, and his disciples did finish that opera. Puccini's best friend, a man named Alfano, completed the opera. And one of Puccini's disciples actually conducted that opera when it, was, when it opened. The premiere took place in Milan, Italy. One of his best students was the conductor. The performance be, had begun and continued to the point at which Puccini's work had ended. And so the student paused, said to the audience, thus far the master wrote, and then the master died. Then he picked up the baton and shouted to the audience, but his disciples finished the music. There's similarities there as to what's happening here in Mark 16. The master died, but our master rose again. And he determined that he would not stay on the earth and go to Italy. Jesus determined not to do that physically. He didn't determine to stay on the earth and to go to the United States one day. He didn't determine to stay on the earth and go to Kenya. He didn't determine to stay on the earth and go to Colombia. He determined to put his spirit inside of his followers while he ascended to heaven and prayed for them and prepared a place for them, and he told them, now you, with me inside of you, go and tell people that I'm alive. So friends, the disciples of Jesus are meant to continue on in his work. Don't get distracted. Don't get distracted by sports, by news, by hobbies. Those things are all common graces, good gifts, but don't get distracted from the mission. Don't, don't get distracted by your own sin. Don't get distracted. Stay on mission. Jesus is alive. Since January 5th, 2020, we've seen in the gospel of Mark Jesus's unmatched power. We've seen Jesus care for children, haven't we? We've seen Jesus raise people from the dead. We've seen sick people ask Jesus if he's willing to heal them, and we've seen him say, heard him say through the pages of Scripture, I am willing. We've seen Jesus touch lepers. We've seen Jesus preach the gospel and warn people of coming, to ju of coming judgment, but they can be right with him. We've seen Jesus graciously call his followers to himself. We've seen Jesus show his disciples pictures of his victorious glory so they can just have enough hope to know that if we suffer and die with him, we know that we'll be victorious with him. We've seen him do so many unmatched things. 
We've seen his compassion, his authority, his instruction, his warnings, his approval from God. We've seen his calling, again, of people to follow him. We've seen him be mistreated. We've seen him being mocked. We've seen his death. And here now we see that he's alive. He's alive. Jesus is who Mark said he was in Mark 1.1. He is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of Man, the victorious one who strangely earned his victory by suffering. So while we, his followers, might still be too fearful, still be too sinful, he graciously restores us to himself and empowers us to stand for him. Jesus is the living Son of God right now. Let's pray. Lord, strengthen us, embolden us to stand for you. There are people that we know and love who are lost apart from you, and we're too afraid to speak to them. How much do we have to dislike them to not speak to them about eternal life? Father, crucify our fear. Crucify any cowardice that remains in us. Let us speak the message of your Son who's alive. Father, there are some of us also who are just caught up in sin, distracted, not following closely to our Master. Grab our hearts. Remind our hearts of the gospel. Remind our hearts of your restoration. Remind our hearts that you forgive us. Remind us of the fact that you wanted Peter to know that you're still going to meet with him. You're still going to be with him. He's still your own. Remind us of that. Father, I think the last thing I would ask you is make your son increasingly fascinating to us. Don't let us read our Bibles and gloss over them. Don't let us check out when the Bible is taught. Help us to see your son clearly. See how wonderful he is. Think of your son telling blind Bartimaeus as everyone's trying to shut up that blind beggar your son walking up and saying, what do you want me to do for you? Your son is so gracious and kind. We know that to be true. I'm asking that you'd help us to know that increasingly and also to know that to the point of wanting others to know how gracious and kind our Savior is. Bring people to saving faith because we learned something about the gospel of Mark and we told them about our Lord do that. Lord, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for every bit of it. We're thankful for this book that we've learned so much about you from. Thank you for being a God who speaks. In that way, you're gracious as well. We pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.